Hey guys, welcome to this end of the year edition of the Brussels to Berlin podcast, where you get an American perspective on European politics from either side of the Rhine. Or I guess in this case, you could probably say either side of the Mason-Dixon line, since I'm here in Texas, this is Tyson Barker, and you're up in Connecticut. Yep, I am. Uh, so this is Dave Keating. I am a journalist normally based in Brussels, but I am home for Christmas in Connecticut, far away from Tyson, who is far south in Texas. Uh, so we're bringing you Both this. For the holidays. Exactly. Me, me as well. And we're bringing you this end of the year podcast uh, where we thought it would be good since we're both in the U.S. to talk about uh, European and American security concerns, um, specifically what happened this month at the European summit where we got the kind of official launch of PESCO, which is the new EU uh, military defense capability and whether or not that poses a threat to NATO, the uh, what many view as an American military protectorate over Europe, or whether it's going to work hand in hand, as so many European leaders would like to tell us. So we'll talk about some of those uh, military alliance developments. And then in the second half of the podcast, we're going to give you our take on what to look out for in 2018 in Europe. So all of that's coming up on this edition of the Brussels to Berlin podcast. So we're going to start talking about PESCO. Um, as, as Dave mentioned, it's the EU's new cooperation mechanism um, launched by the Commission basically in the summer going through September, um, discussed at the Council of Ministers in November, where 23 of the 28 member states uh, signed on and then added two more at the European Council in December. And essentially, this is the structure, a permanent structured cooperation um, for the EU, a kind of lead on program that builds on pre-existing structures, including the uh, European Defense Agency or EDA, which was supposed to make uh, joint procurement or complementary procurement easier. It allows for 17 joint defense projects and everything from joint training to capabilities development to logistics to medical, ISR, etc. Um, and this has been a longstanding desire of the French, but also of the Germans and, and to some extent of the Poles and others who want to say see uh, European states get more bang for their buck. I mean, right now, the European Union collectively, as the European 28, is spending almost as much money on defense uh, as the United States, but definitely does not have the lift, does not have the projection capacity, does not have the ability to operate in theater that the United States has. So this is supposed to streamline and make that a more... Um, uh, more potent force. Yeah, essentially, it's um, boosting all of Europe's military capacity by combining all the different separated capacities. Theoretically. So, for example, if you have, and this was the, the theory of the case back in the 90s, the late 90s, when uh, Jacques Chirac and Tony Blair tried to do something similar at Saint-Malo uh, after the Iraq War, when uh, Gerhard Schroeder and Jacques Chirac tried to do something with complementary procurement. But if you think of it like this, if you have 28 member states and each one of them are procuring the same helicopter, well, or you know, some kind of helicopter or some kind of lift or some kind of logistics, maybe it's better if one state 
took on that capacity completely and was able to plug and play with the other states taking on other capacities. So it's rather than duplicative, it plays on the strength of all 25, in this case, uh, member states. Let's talk about that, uh, the 25 member states, actually, because I think that in the in the media coverage of this, it was definitely portrayed as, you know, getting 25 member states. This was not the original idea um, for this. Uh, President Macron ha- is a big fan of this two-speed Europe idea and he had been envisioning more something more like 10 states signing up originally but then actually they got um, as it got closer to the signing in the autumn a lot more states became interested and a bunch decided to sign up right at the last minutes at the uh, signing ceremony earlier this autumn Poland for instance which uh, nobody thought was going to join uh, because Eastern Europe has, has some concerns about PESCO uh, weakening NATO we'll talk about that a little bit um, but so we've ended up with this very large group, 25 out of the 28 that leaves, you know, the, the UK, which is leaving uh, and has always opposed EU military involvement. And then Malta is not in it. And Denmark, Denmark, and Denmark has can't a, because of its, an opt out. Uh, yeah, no, it has an opt out too. Yeah, it's, it's a NATO member, but it has an opt out. It's very actually a very ferocious and efficient NATO member but and so, sees NATO as the primary vehicle for its defense cooperation. And so what's happened is that the, because so many countries joined, it actually ended up getting quite watered down. Um, the French media coverage was a lot less positive about so many countries joining up because the inclusion of countries like Poland has meant that the the whole concept has to be reined in quite a bit because many of these countries are quite skeptical about the intentions. So you have kind of two tracks here. There's, there's the French who view this as possibly a, a substitute for NATO or something that might uh, replace NATO. And then there's other members that don't see it that way at all. Uh, Germany, I don't think, sees it that way. Perhaps a better way of phrasing that than the French, because the French actually have an alternative vision for uh, enhanced European cooperation on defense, which is the European Intervention Initiative, which um, Macron mentioned at his Sorbonne speech, and is much more operations-minded, where you're building basically around uh, core nations, a kind of hub nation like France, perhaps Germany, one of the larger nations with projection capabilities, You're building around their capabilities with the idea that this can operate in the field. Um, I think that might be an alternative vision. The, the, uh, I would say the institution or the entity that has the idea that it could be an alternative is actually the commission. Um, And you see this, for example, in this very famous, now famous Juncker tweet where he says, you know, we've awoken the sleeping beauty of the Lisbon Treaty. And then he mentions our security cannot be outsourced. And the idea of outsourcing is where people get the idea of, whoa, this might be an attempt to decouple European defense from the NATO alliance, because the outsourcing is clearly a reference to the United States. Yeah, these are the the concerns about NATO in a post-Cold War environment. There's been a lot of questioning, including from uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, what is the utility of NATO in a post-Cold War world? What is the Is it an actual alliance of countries, or is it a kind of U.S. protectorate over Europe, particularly when European countries aren't paying the 2% suggested uh, contribution to the NATO budget? 
Um, you know, there's there's many people both in the United States and in Europe that view this as not a fair deal. The many Americans feel that they're contributing too much, and the Europeans are contributing too little. And many Europeans feel that this is not a true partnership, a true alliance. This is a military protectorate. And so, yeah. you know, in a post Cold War world, people are starting to think about okay, what are some other alternative arrangements for European defense, and that's where PESCO comes in. The problem is, right. as much as people might see problems with NATO as it exists today, it is the only guarantor of European defense. So if people move forward full speed ahead with PESCO and jeopardize NATO in the short term, the problem is there's nothing else except NATO to defend Europe. And so that's that's why this gets really tricky, I think, and that's why, I don't know, it, it it seems like what we've ended up with this year is your classic European fudge. I think that the wind has been taken out of PESCO's sails a bit by precisely the fact that so many countries signed up. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's a, that could be considered a very French take. So the Germans, for example, um, which have always kind of seen the mantra of their, let's say, security and defense leadership as being embedded in Europe, embedded in multilateral structures, kind of encapsulated by the phrase that Ursula von der Leyen likes to say, leading from the middle, um, actually sees uh, greater participation, greater buy-in from more European countries as a victory. Um, the other thing, so the Germans actually want to see more buy-in, um, and I think that they would be vindicated in the fact that 25 of the 28 have signed up. The other thing that might worry France uh, in seeing so many Central European states sign up, in fact, all of the new member states have signed on to this, um, from Bulgaria to Estonia, is that the strategic emphasis will be placed in the east as opposed to placed in the south, mm. which is really where France sees its um, its primary theater of interest, the Mediterranean, the Euromed. So that um, that change in weight on where uh, a potential enhanced European cooperation would focus could be seen as a kind of, let's say, um, challenge for the French strategic community. Now, you, you are closer to the corridors of power in Washington than I am. How do you think that the, how do you think the Washington State Department's community, as well as the people on the Hill, are reacting to PESCO? Do they care? Do they see it as a threat to NATO? Or are they, they happy that Europeans are taking a little bit more of their own initiative for their own defense? Um, I think that the reaction is probably somewhat mixed. Um, a lot of these people have are veterans of uh, European security and, and strategic debates for decades, and they've seen this uh, movie before. They've mm -hmm. seen you know, the San Malo initiative, they've seen what happened after 2003, they've seen what happened with the European Defense Agency, which promised to get more bang for your buck by creating greater complementarity in procurement, acquisitions, R&D in Europe, and really didn't come to very much. And I think that they're waiting to see if this actually has legs. So there's the one community that says, well, is this going to be effective? And I think that that is a uh, a clear-eyed assessment of the current situation. Is this going to do anything? There's another view that is kind of remnants of an 
the 90s, debates that happened in the immediate post-Cold War, where people really thought that Europe would be able to kind of rally itself to do effective operations in security and defense. And they are emphasizing that NATO still has to remain central to European defense. They don't want to see decoupling. Um, so that's, that's a, a second view. So you have the, is it going to be effective perception? You have the, is this going to be a challenge to NATO? perspective. Then you have the question of, is this going to be a distraction perspective? Yeah. And those are all three, you know, that Europeans focus so much on navel gazing, focus so much on institution building, that they lose sight of what is actually, what are capabilities and operations? What, how can you actually deploy in situations of, you know, any kind of military operation? And that, that would be seen as a net negative. And then you have, so those are three negatives. And then you have the cautiously optimistic that say, well, okay, if you can get German and French buy-in and they're actually taking ownership of this, of this mechanism and using it to create, um, to funnel in greater expenditure to meet those 2% targets set at the Wales Summit, the NATO Wales Summit in 2014, and then reaffirmed in, in Warsaw in 2016, then this could serve a positive purpose. So I think, again, the, the reaction is mixed. I think that they would prefer to see more emphasis on operations, as the French are pushing for, um, but they would like to see more practical uh, initiatives, like a military Schengen, for example. You know, General Hodges, um, who is one of the UCOM operators operators in, in, in Europe, basically said it's easier for migrants to travel across the EU than it is for allied military personnel mm -hmm. and, and equipment. Um, do you have the proper uh, protocols in place, the proper clearances, the proper railway clearances to be able to transport things from Germany to the Eastern Front, to the Balts, etc.? Um, so if they could see a military Schengen, I think that that would be much more valuable for Washington. The other thing is, of course, right now, you know, we're in an environment where the strategic challenges are much more acute than they were, say, three to four years ago. Um, and if you just look at what's happening right now in the northern Atlantic, around the UK, Greenland and Iceland, uh, with regard to Russian submarine, um, let's say, presence close to major telecommunications cables, big critical infrastructure, um, there's a question of, are we leaving ourselves open and vulnerable to attack or probing um, by adversaries or potential adversaries? And I think that that would be an area where um, Washington would be more interested in enhanced cooperation rather than all this planning and enhanced uh, institution building. Mm. Well, I suspect that in the short term, at least, this issue is pretty much parked. This has been a project for 2017. The EU has a lot of issues to deal with. So I, I think that the, the PESCO stuff is going to retreat into the backstage. Uh, and we'll uh, look forward to 2018 with some other issues. So we're going to talk about those uh, right after the break. So now in the second half of the podcast, we're going to tell you what we will be watching out for in 2018 in Europe as the new year dawns. So Tyson, what are you watching most closely in the coming year? I, you know, I think just to start, I've got three things, but I want to start with Russia. 
um, you know, Putin's up for re-election. It's going to be his fourth term. He's up for re-election in March. Uh, nobody really doubts whether or not he'll win. I think that's a foregone conclusion. But all the machinations under the surface as to who will succeed him, what kind of legacy he will leave, what kind of system he will leave behind is really going to be quite interesting. And as we go into 2018, we just have the announcement by the U.S. administration that they will begin to provide uh, defensive lethal assistance, uh, javelin, uh, anti-tank missiles, that kind of thing, to uh, Ukraine. So we could see a slight escalation in the conflict between the United States and Russia over Ukraine. We could see um, uh, more tensions between the U.S. and Russia over the INF Treaty and other forms of, you know, um, the system basically regulating the use of nuclear weapons in the, in, you know, globally and between the U.S. and Russia. Um, and then you have this big tee up going into the summer where the, uh, the World Cup is supposed to be hosted in Russia. And that's going to put a lot of countries in a very awkward position because since the annexation of Crimea, a lot of these European countries and the U.S. have had a pretty icy relationship with the Kremlin. And now all eyes are going to be on Russia. It's going to be on the showcase in the world stage. So I think Russia is one place we got to watch in 2018. The second, of course, is, is the German coalition negotiations and, and eventual formation. The contagion of um, uh, polarized, split, uh, ineffectual, um, um, instable governance has spread across Europe from the Netherlands to Belgium, and is now the contagion has hit Germany. And of course, we have the collapse of the Jamaica coalitions a month ago. Mm. Um, Most people are expecting a grand coalition, if it is to form, to take several months in the early year, probably not to be um, concluded until Easter. So that's quite a long time for Merkel and her caretaker government to remain in in power. And it's a long time without a real idea of a mandate for this new government. Um, So watching to see how that coalition comes together, what the last, what everybody assumes Merkel for her last chancellorship will look like, will also be of great interest. And also, of course, they're teeing up for a, a generational transition and a leadership transition as well. So watch Germany as well. And then I guess the final place that I would look at of course, is is Europe. You know, Europe has a lot of questions coming to it. They have a big, uh, the EU has a big transition coming in 2019. But, you know, Macron has put a lot of big ideas, a vision on the table, part of which is enhanced cooperation within the Eurozone with the European Monetary Fund at its core. And that should all be teeing up to this Euro summit on June 28th and 29th. So assuming Merkel gets her coalition together, how are they going to feed into that process? Is this vision that Martin Schultz has outlined at the party conference, the Social Democratic Party conference of the United States of Europe going to play a role? Or was that just a lot of rhetorical hot air? Um, I think that the future of European integration will be really defined in 2018. So those are the three things that I would watch. It's interesting, too, with that Euro summit. I mean, so much of Macron's vision is being stalled by the failure for the coalition government to be formed in Germany because he can't really move forward with this stuff until Macron has a partner who can actually make commitments in 
in this field. That was something they talked about at the December summit. Um, my three things watching for the coming year, I would say the Italian election is probably the thing coming up first. Um, so the uh, Italy has had a caretaker government uh, since last December, a year ago. Uh, Prime Minister Matteo Renzi called a referendum asking for some constitutional changes, and he quite foolishly said that he would resign if Italians voted against his uh, attempts to change the constitution. And then, of course, it became a referendum on him, and he lost it, and he did resign. So since then, in Italy, we've had a caretaker government, um, and this this election has been expected basically at any moment last year it could have been called um, somehow they were able to make it the whole year without calling an election but they have to call one by may so people are expecting this to uh, take place probably in march or april uh, i i will be voting it as i'm an italian citizen i have no idea who i'll be voting for because it's an extremely complicated landscape um, believe it or not because of the vagaries of Italian politics that I don't entirely understand after resigning Matteo Renzi then ran to become leader of his party again and is now trying to become prime minister again which makes no sense to me he is doing very poorly then we have the return of Silvio Berlusconi the former prime minister he's come back as kind of a wax figure with a lot of plastic surgery and he's partnered with the Northern League which is the Northern Italian secessionist party and they could make a big comeback but the big thing to watch is the five star movement this party founded by the comedian Beppe Grillo uh, which is a kind of upstart populist movement a kind of anti-EU although that's kind of a mixed bag um, kind, also kind of anti-euro but um, you know, nobody really has a good idea of what they believe it's it's kind of an amorphous group but it looks like they could become the largest party in the Italian parliament in the election because they're they're polling number one so everyone's kind of watching that with trepidation I think in Brussels you know Italy Italy has had crazy politics for a long time and it's it's kind of everyone just kind of rolls their eyes and looks on with amusement but of course the problem is Italy is a G8 country it's the fourth largest uh, economy in Europe and if it Italy were to run into some really severe political problems that could then translate into severe economic problems and that's the type of thing that draws uh, brings down the entire European economy so people will be watching that with a lot of trepidation um, obviously the next thing I'm looking at is Brexit um, I think that since we have this agreement to move on to phase two of the negotiations which is the future trading relationship between the UK and the EU uh, since we got that agreement in December things are a little bit parked for now I think we all have a lot of Brexit fatigue and so no one will object to this kind of going away as the major issue over the next couple of months UK Media will still continue to follow it very intently. We have a whole series of sectoral dialogues taking place in January and February where they'll be looking at what's possible for the future relationship. But I would say for the rest of Europe, uh, we are pretty happy to not hear about Brexit for a couple months. But there's going to come a point, probably mid-year, where we're going to have to assess where we're at. And the reason that's going to come mid-year is companies generally have one year of forward visibility. And so one year to Brexit D-Day is this March 19th. And so by that point, we're going to, companies are going to be starting to get anxious and they need some assurances that there will be some kind of trading relationship 
in place by uh, March 19th, 2019. Otherwise, they're going to start pulling operations out of the UK. So I think Brexit is parked for a little bit and will come back with a vengeance mid-year. And finally, the last thing I'm watching is next year in 2019, we don't only have Brexit, but around the same time, we have the European elections. These are the elections that take place across Europe for people to elect their members of the European Parliament. It's also when countries select their new European commissioners, a new commission president is chosen, a new council president is chosen. So this is basically the last year of the EU legislative term. Um, so it'll be an interesting thing to watch. I doubt that Juncker would run again. I think I think as far as he's announced that he's already ruled it out. Yeah. So uh, that means that he will be looking to secure his legacy, and it also means a lot of people will be jockeying to take his place. Uh, we have this new Spitzenkandidat process now, in which the parties would select their candidates, um, and the party with the largest number of votes in the European election gets the Commission presidents. Um, uh, position, although we'll see if they actually stick to that. It was just the first year they did that in 2014. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of a, a lead up to 2019 and something to watch for me, I think, throughout the year. Yeah. It'll be particularly interesting because this may be a new format for the European Parliament elections. Not only will this be the kind of professionalization of the Spitzenkandidaten process, which was kind of... Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens with it, because that was not favored by... Exactly. Uh, I mean, when Germany it was happening during the other. election, most European leaders were opposed to it, and it just kind of... It was almost after the fact that the German media pressured the German government into saying, okay, that was a real thing that just happened. But I think now they're kind of stuck with it, European leaders, whether they like it or not. And so it, it'll be a real contest this year. You'll have real big names, I think, um, coming forward with candidacies. And the other big thing to watch that'll be new is Macron's idea to have these pan-European MEP candidates, so members of the parliament that represent pan-European constituencies rather than specific regions and specific countries. They yeah, and then in addition to that, just to throw on a couple other things you got on the plate, you've got the whatever's going to happen in Catalonia mm. uh, with the with the formation of a new government. You have the the full NATO Brussels summit, July 11th and 12th, and then you've got the big COP happening in Katowice in December. So it's going to be an action-packed year. Yeah, I think uh, for people like us, there'll be it's it's it'll be full of excitement, uh, and so we will over the next uh, year be bringing you our thoughts on what's developing. So uh, if you like this podcast, please go on and uh, rate and review on the iTunes Store, and we will be bringing you our insights in the new year. So happy new year, everybody, and we'll see you in 2018. Happy New Year. Happy new year.